Well, last week, last week I invited you to join a rebellion. And some of you are a little stunned at that, I think. It's a rebellion against the status quo. So the first time I ever heard terminology like that, it kind of blew my mind too. It was all the way back in 1979 in an article from a seminary professor, David Wells. By the way, that article is noted in the bibliography that's online, along with many other great resources on prayer. But it's, it's the best article I've ever read, and it really influenced my thinking about prayer. It's so short, but it's so provocative. Today, I want to talk about what it looks like to live that way. But I want to read to you from this article from David Wells. You see, he's urging us that we should not accept the world the way it is, that we should partner with God to change it. To change it. David Wells made this amazing statement. Petitionary prayer only flourishes where there is a twofold belief. So there's two things you need to believe if you're gonna persist in prayer and really sustain it. First, that God's name is hallowed too irregularly. His kingdom has come too little and his will is done too infrequently. By the way, I, rem I believe that those things are true. That's the first basic thing you need to believe. And second, that God himself can change this situation. Petitionary prayer, therefore, is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it on the one hand can be otherwise. And on the other hand, that it ought to be otherwise. It is therefore impossible to seek to live in God's world on his terms, doing his work in a way that is consistent with who he is without engaging in regular prayer. Folks, that is gold. And so Wells kind of asked the question, are we angry enough to pray, or have we just resigned ourselves to the status quo when the status quo clearly does not reflect the world God is actually looking for? Now, I don't know about you, but as I look around at the world that I live in day by day, it is quite troubling. Do you see that same world? I see a world spiraling out of control where evil is celebrated as good and good as evil. I see a world where injustice is rampant and people are still oppressed because of their ethnicity or gender or station in life. And again, I, I don't know about your corner of the world, but as I look around, and this one perhaps troubles me as much as anything. I see a generation of young people that are groping for meaning. They're looking for something to believe in, and often the Christ-following life is not even seen as one of the viable options. In fact, the Church of Jesus Christ is openly reviled more than respected. So I'm describing here a world where evil, evil is screaming at us and mocking us as though we're helpless to act. This is what I see. I see weary souls staggering through their days like sheep without a shepherd. 
And frankly, I'm unwilling, just speaking for myself, I'm unwilling to accept all of that as normal. Friends, hear me today. This is not the world the way God wants it to be. And that's why I pray. Why does Rex Keener pray? Because I'm unwilling to accept things as they are. I think they can change. I really do. I believe they should change, and I'm convinced God, God can change them. But get this part. God has designed and ordained that change will come through our prayers and our involvement. So today, I, I wanna talk with you about the, how that works, uh, how to live like a rebel, how to live life as someone who's actually, honestly, in the right way, angry enough at the world, the flesh, and the devil in order to do something about it and pray. James, in James chapter four, verse two, famously said, you do not have because you do not ask. And because prayer actually makes a difference, uh, last week, you know, I, I confess to you that as a 13-year-old new Christian, I, I struggled with why to pray to a God who already knows everything. I mean, why spend time telling God things he already knows, right? And that really threw me. So I want to explore with you today at least one of the reasons that prayer is so crucial in this rebellion against the status quo. <clears throat> but let me begin by asking a question. Why did God create human beings? Have you ever wondered why? He's sovereign. He doesn't need human beings. Why did he ever do that in the first place? Well, I believe we get some clues to that in the first book of the Bible called Genesis. So I'm gonna read just a little bit here today from this. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now that is a profound statement. First reason God made humanity is that we would be image bearers. Women and men who bear the image of God. His moral character would be stamped on us and it would be displayed in and through us. But I think there's a second reason given in verse 26 where he says, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then if you skip on down to verse 28 of Genesis chapter one, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I'm certainly no Hebrew scholar, but I read Hebrew scholars, and I'm told that is a strong Hebrew word there. It means to wisely bring it under control and steward it. That's what the word dominion means. It's been so grossly mispracticed and misunderstood through the generations, but that's what it was actually meant to mean. He goes on in verse 28, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So please 
please understand what this is saying. God wanted humans to bear his image and he desired for us in a very wise and nurturing way with excellent, with an excellent sense of stewardship under his guidance to exercise dominion over the earth. Wow, what a job description. I mean, that is a huge job description. In fact, in Psalm 8, the psalmist is amazed that God would put humans in such a lofty position. David says there, look, when I consider the heavens, the universe, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars you've put in place, what is humanity? What is man that you're mindful of him? Why would you put humanity in such a crucial position? And he kind of answers the question in verse five. He says, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. Again, that's a reference to that big job description that God gave to us in the beginning as human beings. Now, in giving that job description, that role to us, God's desire was that we would exercise dominion over the earth in submission and obedience to his will. That was God's intent. But you know the rest of the story, right? You do if you've read on particularly when you get to chapter three, you know that we decided to forget God and shut him out and do things our own way. And so for the first time, sin entered into the human experience in Genesis three, and it has been there ever since. And sin had catastrophic consequences for Adam and Eve. They died spiritually. They lived in a fallen state, separated from the very life of God. But we're told, but it didn't just affect them personally. It affected the whole creation. And the whole creation has been off kilter and out of sync ever since. In fact, the Apostle Paul later writes... Stick with me here. I'm going somewhere with this. This becomes very crucial for why we need to pray. He says in Romans 8, 22, creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, what I'm sharing with you right now has everything to do with why we pray. Dear brothers and sisters, we must understand that we live in a fallen creation. A creation that is not, N-O-T, capital letters, not as God desires it to be. Now, as I've been a pastor for many years now, obviously, like probably like many of you do, if you're a person of faith and people know that you are, you probably get a lot of questions, right? And here's one of the questions that I've gotten over and over and over again from people who are just kind of struggling and wondering. They say, why would a good God Have you ever heard this question? Why would a good God create a world filled with such evil chaos and injustice? Quick answer, he didn't. (laughs) He didn't create a world filled with chaos and injustice and evil. Listen, people made it that way. 
In fact, not only is God's will not always being done in this world, but three times in John's gospel alone, Jesus described the devil as the prince of this world. I find that to be a provocative description. And then in the little letter called 1 John, John the apostle describes our current state in this way, he says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are children of God, get this next part, and that the whole world, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Did you know that? And the evil one there is just one of the many biblical names for Satan or the devil. So that is the world that we're currently living in. Instead of God's intention originally that it would be under the dominion of God, it is being ruled and influenced by the devil. In fact, not to beat this to death, but the Apostle Paul says in another place, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel. So that's the world we live in. Chaotic, evil, People are blinded to the will of God. They're living in spiritual darkness. Now, let me ask you a practical question. What does it mean in a practical, real-life sense for Satan to be the God of this world? The verse we just looked at said that, right? He's the God of this world. What exactly does that mean? Well, first, let me tell you what it does not mean. This is important. It does not mean that Satan has somehow defeated God. Never has never will defeat God. This is a very important theological point to understand. Satan is the God of this world, not because he's defeated God, but because he's defeated humanity. Now look at the logic of this. God gave dominion over this world to us, to humanity. You see that clearly back in the garden, the passages that we read. And we read about God's original directive back in Genesis. But when Adam and Eve, in their foolishness, decided to disobey God, they essentially submitted themselves as slaves to the devil and his agenda. Paul says that in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So all of humanity, get this, all of humanity now is born into this world that is captive to Satan. He's the prince of this world, and he holds billions, hear me, billions of people in captivity to do his will, and they live day after day according to his terms. And in the big scheme of things, That's why the world's in the mess that it's in. Aren't you glad you came to church today? God bless you. What happy news. Que sera, sera. Oh, I know that's not happy news. I know this is heavy and ominous sounding, but folks, we have to keep it real. We've got to know the truth. And I'm suggesting to you that one of the reasons that learning to live like a rebel is so vitally important is because of that reality that we just described. Now listen, here's a question. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus? Here's a question you've got to ask yourself. 
Are you okay with the world as it is? Are you? Have you just kind of lost hope and resigned yourself to the status quo? Or through prayer, are you going to rebel against the status quo and ask God to change things? And are you willing, as God would guide you, to partner with God in changing things? Those are incredibly important questions, and how we answer them determines whether we're a genuine, genuine rebel or not. So brothers and sisters, what I'm saying is we honestly have a choice to make. And as we seek to exercise dominion over the world in this wonderful, holistic way that God has directed us to do, we can make a choice. We can essentially choose to shut God out and ignore him like Adam did, or, or through prayer, we can invite God in and partner with God for the changing of the status quo. You say, now, wait a minute, Pastor Rex. As I look at the world, it seems to me that God has lost all control. Well, I can in one sense see why you might conclude that. But hear me today. God has not lost control. God is still sovereign. He's fully in control, and yet he has delegated to human beings, people like you and me, the responsibility to exercise dominion over the world. You say, well, pastor, if that's true, why are we in the mess we're in? It's a great question. Answer, because humanity has botched it. That's right. We've botched it big time. We've jettisoned that God-given responsibility of wise dominion, and we've ignored God's commands. And second, even when we've sought to exercise dominion, we've often done it poorly. We've botched it. That's just the truth. And the earth, in all kinds of ways, is a mess. Here's where prayer comes in. Petitionary prayer is an act of rebellion where we invite God to graciously intervene and change the status quo, the mess we're in, for his glory and our good. And I believe God has delegated that authority to us, his church, listen, to pray powerful prayers in his name. I'm just not talking about pastors doing this. I'm talking about all of God's people. I'm talking about homemakers, business people, school teachers, soccer moms, medical doctors, restaurant servers. Any true follower of Jesus can get in on this and we can pray in Christ's delegated authority and help change the status quo on this planet. I believe that with all my heart, folks. I believe it. But let's turn a big corner now. Let's that's the theological foundation of the, all this. But let's, come on, let's turn a corner now. Stay with me. Let's get very practical here with an example of how you might begin to live as a rebel and pray rebellious prayers against the status quo. Do you want an example? Here's one. Probably one of the verses that I have prayed most as an act of rebellion is Acts 26, 18. We're gonna look at it here in just a moment. Acts 26, 18, this is Paul. The context is Paul testifying before King Agrippa, okay? 
And he's describing, Paul is describing God's commissioning for him and the purpose of his preaching and ministry. And here's what he says the purpose was that God called him to. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And here's the reason, here's the reason. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That me is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave Paul that commission. Now here's the deal. I, I have prayed that prayer regularly for many people through the years. And by God's amazing intervention, lots of people have come to faith. In fact, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of you who are at grace right now that I have prayed that prayer for through these years. And I urge you, I urge you to pray that prayer for people you care about but who don't know Jesus Christ yet. Beckett Cook lived by his own admission a life that was far from God and was just disdainful of the church and the things of God, and he lived that way for over 20 years, just far from God. This is, this is his own testimony. And in his book called A Change of Affection, Beckett tells how his sister-in-law never looked down on him like most Christians did. She never condemned him for his lifestyle or ridiculed him for the way he was living. In fact, she just kept treating him kindly and kept treating Beckett with unconditional love. And she did one other thing. The one other thing Beckett said my sister-in-law did for all those years, while so many people were just condemning me and wagging their fingers in my face at the way I was living, my sister-in-law prayed Acts 26, 18 for me for over 20 years. She prayed that God would open Beckett's eyes Turn him from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And after 20 years of praying that prayer for Beckett Cook, God broke through and changed the status quo. Beckett Cook was one of the most unlikely converts you would ever meet. And he had a glorious conversion to Jesus Christ. <laughs> God can do that. God can do that for the people you love who may be far from God today. God's sovereign strategy is to work through you, his people, the church, to change the status quo in this world. And just like Beckett's sister-in-law, he wants to use you, he wants to use me through our prayers to change all kinds of things about the status quo. Not just the salvation of individuals, but all kinds of things in this world. Now listen, here's what I've observed. Again, I told you last week, I've tried to be a student of the Bible and the student, a student of human nature, and I really love history. Here's what I've observed by carefully studying how this works. Whenever you find people being saved, and whenever you find culture shifting for the good, and God's will being done on earth, there is one thing you can be absolutely sure of, people are praying. You can just count on it. Now, prayer's not putting a gun to God's head. 
Prayer is not saying, hey God, all right now, because you gave the humans dominion in this world, I'm commanding you, God, you'd better do this. That's silly, folks. God is sovereign. God's not gonna be bullied. Prayer isn't twisting God's arm. We, listen, we can't make God do what he does not wanna do. But I believe, now listen carefully, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I believe that we can limit, listen, we can limit the full expression of God's work by our prayerlessness. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Psalm 78 says of God's people again and again, they put God to the, the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. And by vexing God and walking away from his will, they prevented God from doing some of the things he would do. As you intercede in prayer, believe me, God works. And through your prayers, God will make a difference in people's lives. Even people you've never met, people that he lays on your heart. You say, wow, pastor, it sure sounds to me like you believe prayer is powerful. No, I do not. I do not believe prayer is powerful. I believe God is powerful. Amen? God is powerful. But prayer is the means through which God changes the status quo. One more quick example here. I've mentioned the man George Mueller numerous times from this platform. He founded orphanages throughout the UK in the 19th century. And through prayer, God brought in millions and millions of pounds of food and clothing and supplies to feed and clothe and take care of those orphans. Mueller is well known for his praying. His name is virtually synonymous with prayer. But, 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 what fewer people know about George Mueller did you know this? He had a list. George Mueller had a list in his prayer journal of 76 specific people whom God had laid on his heart to pray for their salvation. He wrote their names down and prayed regularly an Acts 26, 18 kind of prayer that God would turn them from darkness to light, God would open their eyes, turn them from the power of Satan to God. And some of the names were people he had recently met, maybe in the last few years. Others were people he had known since his childhood days. Now, this is staggering, folks. This is staggering. Buckle your seatbelt. When Mueller died, 74 out of the 76 people on his list had become Christians. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And after his death, the other two were converted to Christ. Now get this, I wanna make sure you understand what happened. He had interceded for 76 people by name and all 76 eventually came to Christ. Wow. Wow. Rebellious prayer is the means through which God changes the status quo. And as you pray, God works powerfully. Here's my question. What is God laying on your heart? What are you seeing in this world 
that is bothering you and you're not willing just to resign yourself and say, well, that's just the way it is. That will never, ever change at all. No, a rebel sees things as they are and by God's grace, she or he says, God can change this. And God wants to be, use me just like he used Beckett Cook's sister-in-law, just like he used George Mueller, just like he's used millions of his servants down through the centuries to help change the status quo. Now, as I close today, you may wonder, well, since Jesus is our ultimate example, did he ever pray a rebellious prayer like this? I am so glad you ask. Yes, he did. And we're going to look at one example of that right now. It's found in John chapter 11. Let me tell you this amazing story. And I urge you to read it for yourself. In John 11, we see Jesus rebelling against the status quo of his day. If you know that chapter, John 11, you know that his friend, dear friend, Lazarus, had died. And twice in John 11, in verse 33 and in verse 38, the Greek word, embromiomai, interesting word, embromiomai is used in verse 33 and 38. And it's used to describe what Jesus did. It's often translated as groaning or he was deeply moved. That's the way embromiomai is often translated. But it literally could be translated snort in the spirit, because it's this idea of you have a visceral, physical reaction to something, and you, you just kind of snort like that. It's a visceral, almost violent reaction. Now, I, because I was hesitant to use the word snort, okay, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it defines snort as to express scorn, anger, or indignation by violently expelling air through the nose. That was the definition I read online. So you're expressing scorn, anger, indignation with this sort of huff, this sort of snort. The author Aeschylus, famous Greek author, actually describe, he used this very word to describe Greek stallions before they went into battle. As they would rear up on their hind legs, they'd be trained as war horses, as stallions to attack the enemy. And they would snort, Aeschylus says, before they charged in battle. So here's the question. Why did Jesus, quote, snort in the spirit? It's because of what he saw in the status quo. He had entered his father's world and he did not find the harmony, the beauty, the fulfillment that his father had designed. Rather, rather, he found this abysmal, raw ugliness. He found death. He found horrific injustice in his father's world. His father had given humanity dominion, but boy, they had botched it big time. And the world was far, far from what his father intended. So here he is. Here's Jesus standing at his friend's grave, and it's like he saw all of that in one awesome moment. 
He saw all the injustice, all the disorder, all the death, all the despair, up close, all in one snapshot. It all coalesced in Lazarus' death. And no wonder, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. He wept. Of course he wept. But he also got angry. He got angry at the status quo. And as he stood face to face in that moment with Satan, this tyrant of death, the God of this world, the one who's holding the whole world in bondage, Jesus' eyes began to blaze with fury. He was not willing to just resign himself to the status quo and accept it. He was ready to charge the enemy. Now, I would have expected him at that moment to give a piercing shout before he engaged the enemy of death. But John 11 says at that critical moment, you know what he did? He lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed. Before his battle with death, hell, and the grave, he worshipfully prayed to the Father. And then having prayed, John tells us he cried, phonomegaly is the Greek phrase, phonomegaly in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And in that one magnificent, moment. Prayer changed the status quo. I have one practical assignment for you this week, just one that I'm just begging you to do. Like Jesus, I want you, yeah, you can chuckle at it if you want. I certainly did when I first discovered that that's literally what the word embromyomai means. You can chuckle at it, but still do it. I want you, like Jesus, to snort in the spirit. That's right. Here's how. I want you to pick up the newspaper or check the news feed on your electronic device. I want you to read the headlines about injustice and crime and violence and evil. And as you read them, I want you to I want your eyes to blaze with fire. I want you to snort in the spirit. And when you watch a movie this week and you see brazen disrespect for God, I want you to snort. When you hear this week about another incident of human beings being cruel toward other human beings, I want you to snort in the spirit. And then finally, finally, instead of gossiping about it on social media, instead of calling your friends and complaining, instead of returning evil for evil, I want you to lift your face to heaven and pray. I want you to turn the headlines into prayers. That's how you live like a rebel. Father, this world is so far from what you intended. It is full of raw ugliness and disharmony and cruelty from one human to another, tons of unjust structures and oppressive systems. It is full of crime and evil. 
and it's full of apathy. And all of this is not what you designed or desired. But you've given us dominion. You've called us with an amazing job description. And you've called us to be agents of change. So like Jesus, let us not resign ourselves to the status quo. But let us cry out to you and never lose hope knowing the situation can change, and by God's amazing grace, God can change it. In Jesus' name, amen.